October 8th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Dennis McFadden, who is Asheville Smith Professor of Experimental Psychology at UT Austin. Hi, Dennis. Hi. And around the room, we have graduate student Michelle Valero. Hi, Michelle. Hi. We have Rama Rutnam. Hi, Salma. Todd Troyer. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Um, Dennis, you make physiological measures of the auditory system as tools for studying phenomena related to prenatal development and sexual differentiation in your work. First, could you just describe what measures you use in your work? Uh, yes, for the last decade and a half or so, we've been using uh, sounds that come out of the ears. These are called otoacoustic emissions. Um, and um, these are interesting in and of themselves because they are nice tools for non-invasively studying cochlear mechanics in individual people or animals. Uh, but in addition, they show sex differences. And because of that, uh, we started wondering about um, the origins of these sex differences. Uh, we did, did some studies with some special populations of uh, humans and got some kind of interesting outcomes. And that led us to uh, try to get emission measurements in some um, species of um... so I wanted to jump in a little bit because I, I what's one thing I had a question on this yeah <laughs> it's already out of control because <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you talked about how um, uh, you mentioned that these are very constant uh, over time and the question is uh, uh, how constant so do they do they like you know, ongoing all the time? Do they vary in amplitude? Do they have a circadian rhythm? Uh, you know, are they just, you know, your ears are putting out sound at this constant, very flat uh, kind of thing? Or do they, how much does it vary over time? Different um, times it's, it's not well studied. Um, there don't seem to be very strong diurnal effects. There don't seem to be very strong menstrual effects on these measures. We did find in rhesus, it didn't make it into the talk because I was behind, I flipped by it. We found an active, what appears to be an activational, seasonal effect in male otoacoustic emissions. Uh, in fact, it made, until we understood what was going on, it really made trying to understand the data um, tough because we didn't have the nice high replicability in the otoacoustic emissions that we were used to seeing. And we thought, well, maybe this is just a characteristic of the species. But finally, we snapped to the idea of let's plot them as a function of when we made them in, during the calendar. And we saw that, uh, and it goes in the right direction, uh, which is that they were, the otoacoustic emissions were weaker during um, the breeding season when the energy levels are really high in these animals. But anyway, so... Um, how constant? Um, reasonably constant. If you bring a person back um, over the course of several years, the frequencies of the otoacoustic emissions um, might drift a little bit. There is a directionality of drift toward lower frequency with aging, but it's slow. Um, it, they seem to be reasonably stable. Amplitudes of uh, spontaneous autoacoustic emissions, they really can vary all over the map. But traditionally, people have thought that that had to do with the fitting of the microphone into the ear canal. Small differences in the, in the air volume that you capture will affect the amplitudes of the sound that you're measuring. So people have kind of dismissed that. 
the form of the waveform in the click evoked autoacoustic emission, which is an echo-like uh, waveform that comes out of the ear in response to a brief sound, uh, those are very stable. You do cross-correlations on those across time and people, and the correlations are, they're not one, but they're very high, um, you know, high nines, point nines. Yeah. So why would you expect it to be like at, at a few frequencies? It's like you're cochlear outer hair cells, just a few of them go off, or they attract, you know, is it some kind of resonance thing? So so maybe we should just mention that a little bit. What actually produces, so the, the, can you explain how the outer hair cells are actually responsible for producing autoacoustic emissions, and what various kinds of autoacoustic emissions you, you measure, and what they actually tell us about hearing? A fair question, and the answer is I wish I could. Uh, I can say some concrete things about some of the forms of emissions, and about others, it gets a little more hazy. So one form of uh, autoacoustic emission is called the um, distortion product autoacoustic emissions. You put in two pure tones. They have to be relatively close in frequency. Um, and what you can see coming out of the ear is not just those two tones, but a third tone at the frequency 2F1 minus F2. It's a distortion product. It's called the cubic distortion product. Um, its level is, in humans, pretty weak. It's 60-odd dB down from the levels of the primaries. Um, that autoacoustic emission was classically attributed to an additional traveling wave that was being generated in the vicinity of the two primary tones and going more basally, more, more apically, more toward the low-frequency regions, and then reaching a peak there, um, and then also having a reflected component that come back out into the ear canal where we were recording it. Some recent work makes it sound like there may be additional mechanisms also contributing to that one. Uh, click evoked autoacoustic emissions. Um, these are echo-like waveforms that come out in response to uh, transient sounds. Do appear to be like reflections. The argument classically, is that there will be small inhomogeneities in the gradients of mass, stiffness, and coupling, primarily the stiffness gradient, along the length of the membrane, and there will then be a reflection from any place where there is a marked um, um, change in the, in the gradient. Um, and so these sounds that come uh, um, back to the ear canal in response to the click are presumably being reflected off a number of different locations along the length of the membrane. Spontaneous autoacoustic emissions classically were viewed as originating in some small cluster of, from some region, uh, reasonably restricted region along the length of the cochlea, maybe from some small collection of cells, like maybe some of the hair cells. How might that be? Well, imagine that something were to go wrong in an outer hair cell. Maybe a calcium channel went bad. If that happened, why, you might have the possibility of changing the state of polarization in that cell. And if you did that, you would have the possibility of affecting the stereocilia on the top of that cell. And if you and if you affected those stereocilia because they're embedded in the bottom part of the uh, tectorial membrane, you would have produced a movement at that place. And a movement at a particular place along the Bowser membrane 
is tantamount to having a sound that originates from there. And if that sound were then to propagate, retrograde down the basilar membrane and get to the um, stapes footplate, why it has some chance to escape into the ear canal where we would record it. And this is the way I always thought about the spontaneous emissions. There are some recent arguments that that's not right. It has more to do with the standing wave patterns that exist in the cochlea and that it's the inherent background noise level that then gets picked up by certain local regions in the membrane that, uh, along the membrane, that then amplify it and send it back out. And I really don't know the status of the, these are arguments that the modelers make, and I don't really understand the status of that. Perhaps you do, Professor. Um, and, but, the question, the but, but I think that, 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 that your, your, question, your question began with something about why would it be quite so localized? And that what's really localized in terms of um, acoustically are these seemingly, well, they're very, very narrow bands, seemingly pure tone sounds that are coming out of the ear, the so-called spontaneous autoacoustic emissions, and it's hard not to think about those as being as narrow band as they are because they originate from some very localized spot along the membrane, like some outer hair cells that have, for some reason or other, gone bad. You know, these are amplifiers, and what are you going to do with amplifiers? Where are you going to tweak them as high as you can get them to go so that they do the best work for you? But if you do that, you run the risk of overtuning one, and it goes into oscillation, and you then have some kind of sound that comes back from it. And, um, and, and so that's kind of a standard way of thinking about the narrow band aspect of these spontaneous emissions. But um, as I say, people in recent times have been arguing, no, no, that's not the way to think about it. It's really a standing wave phenomenon and the length of the membrane. Each individual membrane matters, and that's why you get different patterns of emissions in different years is due to the different lengths and the nature of the standing waves in the different years. It's a question for the modelers. I'm sorry. I wish I knew more. So you, am I correct in believing that you think this is an epiphenomenon? Yes. So, but what do they tell us about, about hearing and hearing sensitivity? Is it correlated? Do emissions, by looking at emissions, can you say something about our hearing ability? Roughly. Um, if someone has strong emissions, there is a very good bet that if you measure hearing behaviorally, they will be more sensitive. How else might people with strong emissions differ. That's one of the things we're looking at right now. We have crews of listeners, we've been doing this for several years now, we have crews of listeners that come in for six or eight week periods of time. During that time, we train them up on a number of common psychophysical tasks used in the study of hearing, and we get them to be asymptotic in their performance on these different tasks, and we measure their autoacoustic emissions, and we measure their auditory evoke potentials, and the goal down the road is to do correlations to see in what tasks are people who have strong emissions better or different, could be worse, um, than people who have weak emissions. Um, and I'd like to tell you how that's going, and it's just ongoing. Until we have a large N, we don't have a study. And so we're still collecting subjects on so this. Another really basic question. When you say strong emissions, is that a waveform? Yeah. Uh, or is that a frequency measure? The, no, it's a magnitude measure. It's the magnitude of displacement of the waveform, which, of course, is 
attributable to the magnitude of displacement of the eardrum, which is being driven by the middle ear bones because there is a sound in the in the ear. So it is a magnitude measure. It's a decibel measure. Since it happens, since it happens at particular frequencies, and then I guess for any individual, you find that there's one at four kilohertz. It'll be four kilohertz tomorrow too, right? Yes. So that means. But those are the spontaneous. We're talking right, clicks. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I thought I was talking about, yeah. So that's where, where we needed the differentiation. Yeah, okay. So we've gone, we've gone back to spontaneous. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. I was still thinking spontaneous. No, I was thinking spontaneous too, actually. So strength oh. is, a, is a, when you uh, use the word strength, it means very different things for the different types of it, emissions. You, the primary measure for spontaneous is number. You just count them because the amplitudes do vary around. And I think. That is because of the fitting of the probe in the ear canal. I don't really think they fluctuate that much. It's that our measurements are imprecise of it. So I always just talk about the number. We sometimes measure the amplitudes, but we rarely report them. It's number for, for, this, for the spontaneous autoacoustic emissions, and then it's strength for the clicker vote. Okay. And the spontaneous are the ones that are used clinically all the time to assess no, hearing. No, spontaneous. I, 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 it's the click evoke that's used uh, okay. that's used uh, clinically. So um, it's really nice. It takes something like 10 seconds to test a newborn for hearing using uh, click evoked emissions. They have, I've never seen one, but I gather it's something like, it looks like a little gun of some sort that you stick in the ear. It presents the sound and measures the uh echo coming back out. Uh, this is really important because detecting hearing loss in infants early is truly important. The average, until recently, the average age at which hearing loss was detected in uh, American children was 30 months, three zero months. This statistic is absolutely incomprehensible to any parent who's dealt with a child, I mean, you would think that you certainly would have noticed that the kid didn't react to acoustical stimuli, but that was the fact in this country until relatively recently. So finding a way of screening for hearing loss in uh, newborns was really important, and uh, autoacoustic emissions came around about the right time, and uh, click evokes are uh, routinely used. And so, so if a kid, it's a, it's, a, it's a screening test, it's a kind of a fail-pass situation that they very rarely will write down the numbers or anything. It's just fail or pass because 99.9% of all hearing loss is attributable to problems in the cochlea itself, damage of the hair cells, uh, etc. And uh, you won't have autoacoustic emissions if you have that, and so it's a wonderful diagnostic tool. Uh, if a kid fails, there's follow-up with auditory evoke potentials, um, and then I guess some other kinds of tests, but these are nonverbal organisms, you understand. They're newborns, and uh, so uh, you need physiological tests, and uh, click evokes are really quite wonderful in this regard. So that brings up the question that I was starting to ask, which is, uh, if, let's say I had a really strong spontaneous one at 4 kilohertz, and then you tested my hearing very carefully over the whole frequency range. Would you detect something special at 4 kilohertz? Would that be more sensitive or less sensitive than normal at that frequency? Um, yeah, this is a curiosity of um, the situation. You have this strong emission at some frequency. Intuitively, you would expect that your hearing 
would be impaired in that frequency region because it's like being masked by these. Don't forget that these spontaneous autoacoustic emissions are real sounds. There's physically a real sound in there. So if you brought in a weak tone at that frequency, you would think it would just be masked and the person wouldn't be able to hear. The fact is that most people will have a little region of hypersensitivity in and around the frequency of their spontaneous emission. They'll be a little bit better able to detect that tone. That's consistent with this sort of resonance idea in which this is just a a tuned up uh, positive feedback mechanism. The the way people um, explain it is that the real tone that you're putting in and then this real tone, the emission that's coming back out, will interact. And that's what people detect. They hear a change. They put the, when you put the tone, the tone close to the emission okay, frequency. So it's sort of a vernier acuity kind of thing. Ah, uh, not unlike that. Yes. Conceptually, not yeah. unlike that. They don't actually beat. It won't be a case that the two comes together and you hear a wow sound as you would if you had two real tones coming in from the outside that were weak. They don't typically do that, but you'll hear a kind of an interaction that people yeah. will detect that. So, so uh, paradoxically, you have slightly increased hearing sensitivity in the vicinity of the um, emission. So I have a question. Um, what evidence is there that these emissions arise from outer hair cells? Well, people that have lost outer hair cells in some frequency region will not have autoacoustic emissions from that frequency region. They don't have um, either any spontaneous emissions or, more importantly, click-evoked emissions coming from that frequency region. Um, I think that's the primary piece of evidence about the outer hair cell. Also, if I were to give you temporary hearing loss, if I were to give you an exposure to an intense tone for some prescribed period of time and give you a temporary hearing loss, it would also alter the nature of the click-evoked emission that you get out, specifically that frequency range where you had the hearing loss induced would not be represented in this complex waveform that's coming out. So in animals, like you mentioned that there are bird, there are emissions in birds and turtles and frogs, who I, if I'm correct, don't have physically distinguishable inner and outer hair cells. How do you explain the uh, origin? I'm not an expert on this. Uh, my understanding is that um, that there are multiple mechanisms for ge- So what is studied in other species? typically is distortion product autoacoustic emissions that we moment, mentioned a moment ago. You put in two primary tones and measure a distortion product that comes out. Um, we typically think about the mechanisms underlying that in the human or mammalian cochlea as representing two regions on the membrane where the primary tones come to uh, maximum displacement and then this other region where the 2F1 minus F2 also comes to um, maximum displacement. But... People have shown in individual hair cells that you can see a 2F1 minus F2 component coming out. The stereocilia themselves contain nonlinearities, and those nonlinearities can manifest themselves, um, 
I don't know if they actually were measuring sounds or whether they were measuring electrical potentials, but um, that's the way I've always thought about uh, those other species. I'm not an expert in those other species, but my suspicion is that that's at least part of what's contributing to it. Because, as you point out, they, some of those species don't have a continuously varying membrane that's changing in mass stiffness and coupling along its length that then funnels things to different frequencies, um, but rather the different cells seem to be themselves tuned to different frequencies, uh, presumably their capacitance. Um, well, I had no idea about any of this. So, uh, what species have regular basal membrane like what I'm used to, and which ones don't? Mammals. All mammals. Really, just mammals? Yes. So, so, not all vertebrates, though. So other vertebrates have some other plan, or do they have a yeah. whole big, wide variety of different arrangements? Well, in amphibians, you know, there are two hearing organs, one for the lower frequency range and one for the higher frequency range. And we know the higher frequency, the, the oscillator, the, the hearing organ for the higher frequency range, actually, they're all tuned to a very narrow range. So it's like one big oscillator. We don't know if there are outer hair cells in amphibians. It's, it's never been shown. But they do, uh, frogs demonstrate, for example, some of the strongest autoacoustic emissions. So, so basically they have two... Frequencies, they're they like building their auditory world out of two no, frequencies. The, the lower frequency range is somewhat tonotropically organized, just like the mammalian cochlea. So, you have it's a range, there are cells that are responsive to a range of frequencies in the lower frequency range. Then there is a higher frequency, so called oscillator, that it's called the basal or papilla, and the lower frequency is called the amphibian papilla. So, in the basal or papilla, you have a number of cells that are responsive to sound, but they're all fairly closely tuned in frequency, and they're all in higher frequency range. And we know that you can generate uh, you can generate uh, distortion products even when you have tones that span the two membranes, like the distortion products. So it's kind of how they originate and why they originate. Oh, I see. So, and so there isn't a way for a wave to interact between these. Yeah. Two so you know, it raises some questions on about the mechanics of the whole thing. So what what is going on? We, we do not know. But they have they do demonstrate very strong uh, distortion product photoacoustic emissions. They also have SOEs. Spontaneous. Which is very weird. Uh, in primates, in marmosets, we've not so far we've not been able to show spontaneous acoustic emissions. Although yeah, I didn't make that point either in the podcast or in the talk. But spontaneous emissions are—they're not uniquely human, but they're largely a human phenomenon. You, you just don't see spontaneous emissions um, very frequently in other species, um, and so that's one reason the click of a gets as much attention as it does. The other reason is, of course, that it's, in a sense, testing the whole basilar membrane because uh, it's looking for echoes that come from that whole range. So what's the, uh, what's the uh, hearing sensitivity of various primates relative to humans? How good are we relative to lots of other primates? A uniquely human question. <laughs> I think our frequency range is much lower and we're more sensitive to like 2 to 4 kilohertz where... Um, right in the range of our speech where at least marmosets I know can hear up to 37 kilohertz and their peak is around 8 and 17 kilohertz and I think other primates I know that they have a higher range up to 30 to 40 kilohertz. Does it always line up with their vocalizations like it does with us? I would think so. Well the standards so, so this is correct um if you look across mammals, um, the upper frequency range to which they hear 
varies enormously. So a lot of small-headed mammals hear up to very high frequencies indeed. Uh, dogs and cats go at least an additional octave above uh, the human nominal 20,000 cycles or so as the upper limit. And one explanation for this that I've always uh, been captivated by over the years is um, that this very well may have been driven by the mechanisms of and requirements of sound localization. So a very small head can only throw a sound. So, so the two cues for sound localization are interoral differences in sound pressure level and interoral differences in timing uh, between the arrival of the sound at the two ears. Clearly, when you have a little tiny head, the differences in the timing of the wavefront at the two ears are going to be vanishingly small. The differences in sound pressure level that you get will depend upon frequency. Specifically, the head can only throw a significant shadow for sounds for which the head is a, a, a large fraction of the wavelength of the sound, which means that you're going to have to be able to hear to very high frequencies if you're going to be able to localize the sound. So the argument that was proposed some years ago is that it's, um, um, you shouldn't ask, why is it that my dog hears better than I do at higher frequencies? It's why do we not hear to those high frequencies? And the reason is our heads got big enough that the interaural time difference, the time between the arrival of the two ears, got large enough that we could start to use it. It's still a small number, but we are incredibly good. We can use 10 microseconds of difference in the arrival time of the two waveforms and still be able to perceive it. But since we got that good, the argument goes, we didn't need to be able to use the differences in sound pressure level at such high frequencies because we were able to do such a good job with timing at the low frequencies. Um, so, uh, I don't know what got us into all this. Uh, in terms of sensitivities, we are extraordinarily sensitive um, humans. So, at the threshold of hearing at a thousand cycles, the um, eardrum moves less than the diameter of a potassium molecule. It's a very small displacement that we're able to detect. And other animals approach that kind of sensitivity. At the very low frequencies, it's Brownian motion that limits sensitivity. So all thresholds curve up um, by the time you get down to 100, 150 cycles or so, and then lower. Um, and the classical explanation there is that it's a masked threshold with the masking sound being Brownian motion in the, of the air in the canal. So you mentioned the sex differences that you find in autoacoustic emissions. And you were the one, I think, the first report that, you know? You were. No, other people had noticed the sex differences uh, that existed. Um, we, our first interest was in terms of heritability. We were interested in the individual differences that existed in uh, SOAEs and click-evoked OAEs. And, uh, so, and that's why we were going to do the twin study. By then, we already knew from other people that the, to expect to see sex differences, and then we did. Right. And so could you talk a little bit about your idea about prenatal androgen exposure and how you think that may contribute, what supporting uh, evidence there is? Could you say something first about heritability? Because those are kind of two different things, right? And uh, the first question you were asking was about heritability, and you got an answer. Yeah. And I wonder about that. 
well, I'm probably going out on a limb here that somebody's going to saw off, but um, yeah, the, uh, to the audience, yes, we did a twin study, and the, and the whole idea here, uh, as I suspect you know, is that um, if you have a trait that has a genetic component, then you should expect to see uh, more similarity in, that, in, in the measure of that trait in monozygotic, uh, identical twins, than in dizygotic or uh, fraternal twins, because the latter have just about as many genes in common, about half, as uh, brothers and sisters from the same uh, parents born at different times. Um, and so we did that study, uh, a, a twins analysis of autoacoustic emissions, and we found that heritability was about 0.75, which is pretty good. Um, things like height and um, um, are correlated about 0.9 or 0.95 in humans, and things like my uh, colleague's study, um, psychological characteristics like honesty and religiosity, those are correlated about uh, 0.3. The, the heritabilities are about 0.3 there. Um, and we're at 0.75, which is about like what, um, what IQ is. Well, so now the question is, um, am I being inconsistent? Um, so we did find reasonably high heritabilities, and uh, then the rest of the work that we've done has uh, suggested, both with animals and humans, has suggested that there's a strong congenital contribution to autoacoustic emissions. Specifically, it appears that when developing fetuses are exposed to high levels of androgens, their cochlear amplifiers are weakened and their autoacoustic emissions are weakened. And uh, I guess the question is, is there an incompatibility between these heritabil the heritability measurement that we've got and the appeal to congenital um, causes that um, the rest of the talk appeals to? And I don't have a snappy answer for that. I guess it's circular, right? Because you could assume that levels of androgen are heritable. Right? Um, so yes, you know, something that's you know whatever the the mom or whatever or the or the sensitivity to androgens in in utero is also heritable, right? Yes. So um, you yeah, that's down. pretty snappy answer. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems pretty circular. It's actually related to a question that 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 uh, that I had. So one of the things that you're trying to do, and we can maybe talk about the specific things, is relating autoacoustic emissions as some level, uh, some indicator of androgen levels in uh, in utero, and related to other uh, things that might be affected by androgen levels in utero. Um, but I was wondering about individual differences uh, within groups. So you do a lot of between-group uh, uh, studies about, uh, you know, uh, homosexuals or prevalent, you know, whether you have a disease or not, and you say that that group has stronger or more autoacoustic emissions than uh, other groups. And I was wondering if there's anything that you can detect where that's a more of a graded scale where the levels of autoacoustic emission go with prevalence or intensity or something like that. Yeah, so at, at this stage, what we have are group differences. Um, we've at various times tried to do individual difference type analyses and um, 
you just don't get very far. So you, um, it really has to be at this point thought of as group differences. Um, might it be that if our ends were substantially larger that we would be able to do more by way of uh, individual difference analysis? Very possibly. Uh, often many of the twin studies do involve just thousands and thousands of twins, you know, the Australian twin studies and all that. So that's possible. Um, I just don't know. Um, and it's relevant for me because when we start analyzing these data I just told you about our collecting, where we're testing all these different crews of listeners on these different um, psychophysical tasks, that's basically going to be an individual difference analysis. And it may be doomed to failure. It may be that we just will not have the precision of measurement that will allow us to um, say much about the individual difference part. Uh, I'm hoping that's not true because several years of work have gone into this and a lot of NIH money, but it's it's logically possible. I'd like to ask you to backtrack a little bit and remind us of how the twin study led you to the androgen. Well, in the process of doing the twin study, I also ran opposite sex twins. And this is uh, not a group that is typically used in heritability studies because you they're just not included in the calculations. Um, but in those um, groups, what we found was that females with male co-twins had autoacoustic emissions that were weakened. They were more like the autoacoustic emissions of males than like females in any of the other groups. And so while the initial motivation for the study was to estimate heritability, and we did that and we published it, it, um, it wasn't my primary focus once I looked at the data because the fact that these female co-twins were so different really captured my attention. I became curious about it. Um, unlike the way the talk unrolls, I was left... Um, pondering that fact for quite a long time with nothing to do. I mean, how do you go about studying something like that? How you get an idea that's got something to do with androgen exposure in humans and during prenatal development, how in the world are you going to get at that? Uh, the ideas that came to mind involve special populations that I didn't have access to, like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, like um, androgen insensitivity syndrome, these are still special populations that I would love to get access to, but I haven't been successful yet. Um, but short of doing that, what in the world do you do? And what I resorted to was being opportunistic. There were things that were available to me, and I chased them. Um, the ADHD study kind of fell in my lap. Some of my colleagues were working on ADHD uh, kids. I got word of it, and I asked if we could get piggybacked on their study, and they were generous enough to add us on, and in the end, I think we were all happy that, that so we did. the rationale of that was that you tend to see male... It's, uh, it's so overrepresented in males. A bigger, uh, a more important group, or more obvious group, is autism. Yeah, autism is also way overrepresented in males, and the symptomatology also is evident very early in life. Given that hormone levels between the two sexes are the same after birth until puberty, any differences that you see in the two sexes, like this 
uh, excessive prevalence of autism in males has got to be attributed to something that happened earlier in life. Some, it's got to be some after effect, if it's a simple hormonal effect. Um, and so I'd love to be able to um, get uh, measurements in autistic kids. Uh, we've got a, grant a collaboration with some folks in uh, Houston that uh, I hope will finally get funded, but um, we, we run up against the NIH um, system and haven't gotten funded yet. So, so, could, so what's the utility of having a prenatal hormone, an early exposure marker? In, what's the, sort of the next level question that you would like to ask? Yeah, the, the question is really kind of aimed at treatment issues. And this gets to be really touchy and really difficult. Um, I don't think anybody would object strongly if I could come up with some kind of a autoacoustic emission test that would identify certain infants as being predisposed to ADHD if there was then some known treatment that might affect the ADHD and make it less bad in that kid. Much more touchy is the issue of what if I were to find that there were differences in autoacoustic emissions in infants that were predictive of homosexuality? Um, there certainly would be strong um, voices in the community that would be opposed to trying to do anything about trying to, quote, treat that condition. Uh, it gets to be a very difficult uh, issue. Even testing. Uh, if, so if, if testing predicts something that affects um, insurability, for example, of a person, then even the test becomes a controversial thing. So I don't know about autism or ADHD, whether those are insurability, liability things or not, but uh, all these tests of children run, just like genetic tests do, they run up against a whole lot of legal and social issues. I think the reason for using autoacoustic emission for testing infants is because early intervention, we have intervention strategies for, for, for hearing, hearing, for hearing loss. loss. Yeah. And so it is an acceptable test. In fact, it's now clinically accepted. It's widespread use. It's mandated by law. Mandated by law. And it has saved, I mean, it has helped a lot of kids. But I agree. So these data are actually there. The data that would be used to predict autism are already being collected in every child that's born. and. I believe that, that they exist somewhere. Um, often what is done using the early screening test, click evoked emissions, is simply to check pass or fail. The numbers themselves aren't written down. And without the numbers, I don't think you would have it. But my suspicion is that there are hospitals somewhere in which they're using different equipment or they had just got different ground rules and somebody's been writing down the numbers and one could work backward, go find a bunch of kids that, um, teenagers or young adults who 
say, are um, expressing ADHD characteristics are in fact non-heterosexual and work backward and find those data. I wouldn't be at all surprised that it could be done uh, somewhere in the country, somewhere in the world. I don't know that anybody has done it. But then it's what you have to need to do is to develop an auto-acoustic emission device that has a USB that someone has to plug into a computer to actually download the waveforms. Because once you get into a computer, they're like somewhere everywhere, and you can go back and mine those yeah, and find them. Yeah. Emissions are in the cloud. Yeah, you can find them. It seems like it would be useful to establish that link, though, between changes, even the seasonal changes in auto-acoustic emissions that you see, or, for example, the the oral contraceptive changes that you see to establish that that those are actually linked to some sort of hormonal flux. Do you measure hormone levels in your subjects during those late phase changes, those postnatal during the postnatal phase? Oh, oh no! Is the time course of of the of uh, the changes that you'd see in autoacoustic emissions you think relevant? later in life? If I understand the question, I don't think anybody is trying to measure hormone levels uh, in intrauterine fluids, say, no, I know, uh, but, late but, in but pregnancy. No, no, later in life. The, later in the life. oscillations that you see that are associated with seasonal in changes. In the monkeys, for example. Yeah, so if you can establish the, the, the correlation there between the changes, has that been done? No, no. Um, we, uh, our collaborator, thought he had some measures of uh, hormone levels in his subjects at different times in life, and I don't know what happened, but that that just never that analysis didn't work. I don't know that I ever saw the data that, just, that didn't work. Simply, yes, I think it would be like postmenopausal women, for example. Do they have OEs that are different from the men who are? Yeah, this this is a, this that's a special population I've thought about working with, but notice that it gets that activational effects. Yeah. Of hormones and the emphasis so far really has been organizational. Um, very little, if anything, happens to autoacoustic emissions or, as far as I know, AEPs over the transition of puberty. So there are monstrous hormonal effects and there are some new organizational effects that are occurring at that time. There's no evidence of anything marked happening over that uh, time frame in uh, the kids. Um, so this suggests that it's a prenatal androgen exposure. That's the most. There, there are a number of things that suggest that it is prenatal. Yeah. Um, certainly, some of the animal work, uh, where you look at castrated or ovariectomized animals, and they look just like the untreated animals, um, removing, <laughs> reducing their current levels of androgens or estrogens doesn't seem to affect their emissions um, very much at all. But you start messing with them during prenatal development and you have the chance of changing. Do you think for the rhesus monkeys, if you had had castrated males that you measured during the breeding season, that they would yeah, not show right. the same That's the hope, but we didn't season. have that. But if in your marmosets you're able to do some manipulations like that, well, that would be, uh, ought to be able to strengthen some of the arguments that you're making, yes. I am, t I am taking blood samples to do hormone assays. Excellent. This is a collaboration of the works. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you, Dennis McFadden, for being with us. This has been lots of fun. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs> <laughs>